Welcome to the Paranormal States of America. I'm your host, John Devine. And in this episode, we'll be finishing up our look at the paranormal activity in the state of Maryland, taking a look at the UFO activity found in the unsolved cases of the U.S. Air Force's Project Blue Book. Every time I begin to research UFO activity, I never know what I'm going to find. Sure, some states have notable cases that are the backbone of UFO lore, but there are numerous sightings and encounters throughout the country that live in relative obscurity because they aren't big flashy cases like Roswell, Phoenix, or Lubbock. Maryland has a few of these hidden gems that have been sitting in the archives of Project Blue Book, left unsolved for over 50 years. We're going to take a look at these cases and see what's been seen in the skies over Maryland. In the early morning hours of April 18, 1952, four friends were hanging out in the front yard of one of their homes in Bethesda. The weather was cool and clear, and the moon was in the last quarter. Suddenly, the group noticed a formation of bright lights streak across the sky from the south to the north. The lights were in a V-shape, with three or four lights on each arm of the V, with one light in the middle, making it more of an A-shape. The lights were described as glowing orange and disc shape. The size of each light was described to be about 15% of the arm of the V. The observers indicated that the objects made no sound as they passed overhead. They described that the light seemed to glide in formation, staying equally spaced throughout the duration of the sighting. The lights traveled across the sky at a very high rate of speed, estimated to be about 500 miles per hour at an altitude of about 1,000 feet. The sighting lasted less than 10 seconds. During the investigation, the Air Force could not find any evidence that jet aircraft were in the area at the time of the sighting. Another line of questioning was to ask the witnesses if they had seen reports of similar UFO sightings, such as the Lubbock lights from the summer of 1951, which were reported as a similar formation of unusual lights. The witnesses reported that they had not seen those reports. With no explanation for this sighting, it was classified as unsolved. On February 10, 1955, Bethesda made another appearance on the unsolved cases list. The witness was a civilian metal worker at the U.S. Navy's David Taylor Model Basin, where designs of Navy ships are tested in a giant indoor wave pool that simulates rough seas. This sighting's Blue Book case was handled a bit differently than many of the others as it came from a Navy employee. There were at least three Air Force and Navy officials involved in the report. This shows that reports made by members of the military workforce were taken seriously. The witness was interviewed at his place of work at the Model Basin. At approximately 10.03 p.m. on Thursday, February 10, 1955, the witness was driving with his wife and young son going east on MacArthur Boulevard in Bethesda, which even to this day is a rural two-lane road. He said he was between 75th or 76th Street and the entrance to Cabin John Gardens, a space of about two city blocks, when he saw a, quote, illuminous object shaped like a very small portion of the moon very slightly to the right of the car with an altitude estimated at 150 feet. According to the witness, the object was enormous in size, 
three to four hundred yards and ten to fifteen feet high at its widest point. He described it as a yellowish radiant color like the moon. It had a flat top parallel to the horizon and a spherical bottom. The object made no sound that would normally be associated with known aircraft. He said it stayed stationary for about 30 seconds. Then the bottom portion appeared to assume a funnel shape approximately 30 to 50 feet in depth at its widest point, narrowing at the bottom, and the object seemed to diminish in size. After reaching Cabinchon Gardens, he turned the car around to retrace his route but did not see the object anymore. The entire duration of the sighting was approximately one and a half to two minutes. The witness reported that it was a dark, cloudy night with no moon or stars visible, and there were no other cars on the road at the time. I checked the historic weather reports, and the conditions for the time of the sighting are, are listed as mostly cloudy, so his description is somewhat validated. This was a giant UFO sighted, being as long as three or four football fields. That is a huge object. To put it in perspective, the Nimitz-class aircraft carriers in use today are 334 yards long. The Hindenburg airship was 267 yards in length. This object, if the size was accurate, would be unlike anything in the air or water on Earth in 1955 or today. By far the most well-documented UFO sighting that still remains unexplained to this day is that of the Lock Raven Dam sighting from October 26, 1958. This case has significant documentation from the Project Blue Book file, so instead of summarizing the incident, I'm going to read parts of the witness testimony so that you hear what the witnesses Mr. Philip Small, age 27, and Mr. Alvin Cohen, age 24, reported. First is the story from Mr. Cohen. We were taking a ride out near Lock Raven Dam Sunday, October 26. After you pass the dam itself, there is a rather twisting road that goes down into the valley and obstructs your view of the lake entirely. You can't see the lake nor a bridge that leads across it. Shortly after you pass the dam, until you take a left turn, then the bridge looms up in front of you at a 200 to 250 yards away. We took this left-hand turn and we saw from that distance what appeared to be a large, flat sort of egg-shaped object hanging between 100 to 150 feet off the top of the superstructure of the bridge over the lake. We slowed and then decided to go closer and investigate the object. We crept closer to the object along the road leading toward the bridge. When we got within 75 or 80 feet of the bridge, the car went completely dead on us. It seemed as though the electrical system was affected. The dash lights went out, the headlights went out, the motor went dead. Mr. Small, who was driving the car, put on his brakes, turned the ignition once or twice. We didn't get any whirring sound. We were pretty frightened at this point. We both got out of the car. On this road, there is nowhere to hide or run, which is probably what we would have done. So we got the car between the object and ourselves. We watched it from that position for approximately 30 to 45 seconds, and then, I am not sure the sequence of events here, it seemed to flash a brilliant flash of white light, and we both felt heat on our faces. Concurrently, there was a loud noise that I interpreted as a dull explosion, and Mr. Small heard as a thunderclap. Then, very quickly, so that you couldn't gain the proper sequence of events, the object started to rise vertically. It didn't change its position as far as we could tell during the rising. The only different feature it had while it was moving was that it was very bright and the edges became diffuse so that we couldn't make out the shape as it rose. It took from 5 to 10 seconds to disappear from view completely. We were very frightened. 
After the object disappeared from view, we turned the car around without crossing the bridge. The road is rather narrow at that point, and in turning the car, I remembered that we smashed into the embankment on one side of the road. If you will look carefully, you can probably see where we hit this hill. We got back to, the, to a phone in approximately 15 minutes. The phone booth we used was located at Lock Raven Boulevard and Joppa Road. We proceeded to call the Ground Observer Corps with no result. Our story only elicited complete disbelief. After this unsuccessful attempt to report what we saw, we called the Towson Police Department. They told us there were two patrolmen coming over and we waited for these two patrolmen. We told them what we had seen and at this time both Mr. Small and myself noticed burning sensations on the skin of our faces and a dryness of the eyes. Mr. Small was rather worried about this and after we finished reporting what we had seen at the dam to the police, we proceeded to St. Joseph's Hospital in Baltimore and were given a cursory examination and dismissed. Then we returned home individually. Mr. Small's report discussed the reception of their report to the Ground Observer Corps member and more information about their hospital visit after the sighting. Immediately after calling, the Ground Observer Corps member said, Oh, come on now. And I said, I would just like to report this thing. I am not interested in asking whether you believe it or not, but I would like to find out if anyone else in the area has possibly reported the thing. He says, oh, come on now. He said there were Navy blimps in the area, but when we insisted that the thing was probably no blimp, he hung up on us. It was at that time that we wanted to try to get confirmation of the report, not to make any publicity or make names for ourselves, but to see if anyone else has possibly heard the thing. We decided to call the police. Two policemen came out to the scene and began taking a report. We at the time questioned, this won't get any further than possibly going to the Air Force, and he claimed that it wouldn't. At the time we were reporting the thing, we noticed a burning sensation on our faces. We didn't pay too much attention at the time except to ask the police if they had noticed if our faces were red. The policemen said that they didn't, but we still noticed a burning sensation. After making the report, we left the police and went to St. Joseph's Hospital to try to determine if possibly they were some kind of radiation burns or any other type of thing that we may have received. The doctor looked at our faces and claimed that Mr. Cohen's face was slightly red and mine wasn't. He, of course, looked at us thoroughly, took our pressures and everything. It was only a superficial examination, but he claimed we had nothing to worry about. A police sergeant at the scene, who seemingly had gone to a radiation class of some kind, mentioned that if it had been a radioactive burn, we wouldn't have been burned immediately, and it would have taken some time to develop. This, of course, led us to believe we didn't have to worry too much about the radioactivity. We left the hospital and went home that night. The next day, my face did become a little redder, and it was apparently noticeable to anyone who spoke to me. The investigating officer for Project Blue Book was Bert Staples, 2nd Lieutenant U.S. Air Force. While en route to visit the scene of the sighting, he stopped at a restaurant near the dam to see if they had seen anything on the night in question or any other night. Here is Staples' report concerning this. While en route to take these photographs, I had the opportunity to talk with the manager of a restaurant located across the lake from the bridge where the UFO was sighted. The restaurant was on Lock Raven Road. I had stopped to ask directions, and it was mentioned that the manager had made a similar sighting on the night following the reported UFO. The manager was driving down Lock Raven Road, the same road that the bridge was located on, while taking one of his employees home. Both the employee and the manager simultaneously pointed to a glowing light hovering over a field. The time was accurately established as being between 2105 and 2115 Eastern on 27 October 58. The object appeared suddenly 
and as the manager and employee continued down the road towards it, it just as suddenly disappeared. The manager's description of the disappearance at the time was, Look, it disintegrated. The object was in sight less than a minute, and no noise accompanied its disappearance. Staples asked the restaurant manager about the night of October 26 when Small and Cohen had their sighting. The manager mentioned that several employees heard the noise, which was reported by Small and Cohen, the evening of 26 October 1958, but no one saw the object. The manager described the sound as a double boom, a boom, boom, in quick succession. To the investigator, his description did seem like the sound of an aircraft breaking the sound barrier. The second boom may have been an echo of the first. So what was the glowing egg-shaped object over the Loch Raven Dam sighted in 1958? Staples' report. There was no unusual meteorological activity in the area, no thunderstorms, and the weather was quite clear. Visibility at Friendship International Airport was 20 miles at 0100 Eastern, 27 October 1958. The height of the observation, about 150 feet, precludes the possibility of the object being an aircraft. Natural fluorescent gases, etc. can be ruled out due to the noise involved. No special projects are known to be operating in that area. As far as this investigation has gone, this UFO remains unidentified. So let's recap some of the incredible details about this case. First, the car driven by the two men stalled out, making this a close encounter of the second kind based on J. Allen Hynek's classification system. Second, Booms heard by Small and Cohen and the other people in the general area of the dam. Staples suggests in his report that this could be a sonic boom, with the second boom being the echo of the first. Many descriptions of sonic booms describe them as being similar to thunder or small explosions, just as Cohen and Small reported. Let's remember, the sound barrier was first broken by Chuck Yeager in 1947, but it was still uncommon for aircraft to break that speed. By 1958, only a few aircraft were known to be able to reach supersonic speeds. Finally, the skin irritation caused by the glow of the craft. This reminds me of Richard Dreyfuss's character in Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where he sees some UFO and the bright light causes half his face to get burned. This type of response shows that the two men came into close contact with something that was unlike any other type of aircraft. There continue to be sightings of strange objects in the sky around the Loch Raven Reservoir Dam. What could these objects be, and why are they hanging around the Loch Raven Dam? Until those questions are answered, these cases will continue to be unsolved. Before I conclude this episode, I want to thank you for listening to this and all the other episodes of the Paranormal States of America. Now that I've got a few episodes down, I want to share where I plan to take the show from here. First, this is honestly something I never thought I would do. I've always had an interest in the paranormal, but I always relied on the content from others to learn more about these topics. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great content out there from hundreds of creators. But after listening to several different shows, I started to see that the same cases, encounters, and sightings pop up. This is why I made this show, to go beyond the well-known cases and take a deeper dive into the paranormal lore and the Project Blue Book records of the different states. Many of these cases are new to me, and I hope they are new to you as well. Now that we've looked at two states, Maryland and Virginia, and Washington, D.C., I had to think about where the content is going next. Well, here is a list of the next states we're going to look at, and in what order. I'll be upfront with you, I haven't done research into most of these states yet, so I don't know what the content will be like, how many episodes we're going to be doing for each state. Some could have the normal three, or they could have more, or they could have less. 
So that's still going to be a surprise. The next episode, we'll start our look at the paranormal activity in the state of Delaware. From there, we moved on to New Jersey. This is one state I do know something about, and I'm looking forward to diving into those legends. After New Jersey will be Connecticut, followed by Rhode Island. And then we get into Massachusetts, where I'm looking forward to researching more into the Salem witch trials. From Massachusetts, we're going to look at Maine, and then to New Hampshire. After New Hampshire, it's Vermont, then New York. I did it in this order, since Vermont and New York share Lake Champlain and the creature that calls it home. After New York, we'll look at Pennsylvania, then West Virginia. West Virginia has at least two well-known pieces of paranormal lore, and it will mark the end of season one of the show, wrapping up the Northeast United States. So that's the plan. I'll keep researching, writing, and recording, and I hope you keep listening and spreading the word about this show to your friends. I've seen tremendous growth in our listener numbers, and I can't thank you all enough. Please follow the show on Instagram at the Paranormal States of America. We just got added to Amazon Podcasts, so if you're an Amazon subscriber, hit the follow button in the app. Or follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast directory you prefer. We're on most of the major podcasting platforms, and if you don't see us on yours, let me know. For now, please stay safe, watch the skies, and be careful in the woods because you never know what is out there with you. Until next time, I'm your host, John Devine, signing off from the Paranormal States of America. Thank you for listening. Thank you.